Welcome to the Healing Grove Podcast. I'm Dr. Kristen Ryman, an integrative holistic family physician, author of Life After Lyme, and host in this virtual space of learning, healing, and growing. I believe humans are like trees, and our physical limb is only one of many. Health on all limbs of the tree, emotional, conceptual, social, spiritual, is absolutely required for the whole tree that is you to be vibrantly well. I created the Healing Grove podcast as a place to showcase some of the world's best integrative and holistic medicine, to expose you to transformative tools and mindset shifts for all limbs of your tree. I hope you enjoy our conversation in the Healing Grove today as much as I enjoyed having it. Hi, Megan Dwight. How are you? Hello. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Welcome back to the Healing Grove podcast, episode number... I forget what episode this is that you're, I think it's your fifth interview. Yeah, I think you're right. Fourth or fifth. It might be fourth because we did one for peds. We did, you know, it's fifth, one for peds, two for surgery, one for psych. And now, bum ba da Well, that's what we're talking about tonight. We are talking about OBGYN. Okay, so I have a little bit of information that everyone listening doesn't have yet about you and OBGYN, but just, I want to hear you describe how you feel as you say OBGYN. Honestly, it's, it's been such a, it's been such a powerful and emotional last six weeks because I've finally found this spark in medicine that I never knew I had. I knew I was always very passionate about medicine and I I loved the patient interaction component, but this feels different and it feels so right. And the best way for me to describe how I've felt this last six weeks is so invigorated by my work, so enthused about waking up and going to work every day, so passionate about the patients that I'm serving so encouraged by the people that I'm surrounded by and um, just this sense of connection to a field that I never have experienced before. Yeah. And so um, having done OB and also fallen in love with OB and felt total sparks on that rotation and thought I was going to be an OBGYN until I discovered family medicine and realized I could still deliver babies and do other fun stuff too. I was um, also super excited about it, but people who have not had the pleasure of going through that rotation as a medical student for the first time probably will want to hear like what was so magical about it. Yes. So to just break down how it looks uh, as a medical student is it's a six week rotation at George Washington which may differ from other institutions. But I got to spend the first half, the first three weeks in an outpatient setting, which is actually a little bit longer of an outpatient um, experience than most schools. But um, we they allocate half the time for outpatients. So that would be like your clinical exams. So your pap smears, your, your breast exams, your annuals um, for individuals that want to have... Um, birth control or some sort of contraception conversation for any woman that's pregnant and has their prenatal appointments. So all the things um, outpatient, and then you go three weeks inpatient, and that's broken up between the obstetrics component, which is your labor and delivery. You are the beauty of OBGYN is babies don't wait. They are constantly being born. And so whether you're on a night shift or you're on a day shift, you really are, there's so much excitement and energy um, on the labor and delivery floor all day and night. And then the gyne component, it, a lot of that is like gynecologic surgeries um, or gynecologic conditions um, that they are treating. So it's, it's a lot. And that's kind of why I love it because you just can, the breadth of um, patient presentation is so vast that you get to see and help um, women in all stages of their life. And one really quick thing I wanted to say before we continue is that I think it's really important to acknowledge that when we use the word woman in the context of birthing or childbearing, 
um, we're really talking about individuals that have a uterus. And I think that in medical school and in our training, it's, we've, I've come to realize it's very important to understand how a patient identifies before you start painting this general picture. And so when I say things like women's health, or I say women, I think I want to make sure that it's understood that that doesn't always necessarily mean that's how that individual is identifying. And it's really important to make sure you, um, you confirm and you create that space um, from the beginning with patients. So it sounds like that conversation has come up in your education and, and you are, you are all learning to speak in that way so that nobody yeah. and everyone feels included and everyone feels like permission to sort of be who they want to be inside the body they have. And absolutely, absolutely. Which is different from when I was in medical school. Yeah. 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 So I'm, I'd love to hear what the most surprising thing about OBGYN was for you on this rotation. I think outright the most surprising thing was how connected and excited I would be in this field. I think I went into, as we've seen over the course of these, these podcasts, I haven't really felt like I, I haven't known what I wanted to do or be or become. And I felt this direct and immediate calling here in this rotation. And so I think that was the most surprising. I think deeply rooted to that is one, seeing these individuals who produce a human being inside of their body and then deliver that human being through like very natural processes that our bodies have constructed in order to procreate is actually a miracle in my eyes. And I say that, but I really mean that every delivery that I was in, I became tearful because I just was so amazed by the human body. And specifically, I think in this time, so I think the labor and delivery part of OBGYN is really what has sparked me the most. And I think part of that is because it's an incredibly scary, vulnerable, mysterious time for a woman. And a good doctor, I think, can show them that this is an empowering time. This is a time of strength. This is a time of um, of unique, amazing beauty. And so I think that, you know, in a time where people feel at their worst, I think it's a, it's a really important time to intervene and make sure that they know that they are supported in, in what they're doing. Um, and that was kind of my role as a med student this, these last six weeks. Yeah. What did that, what did that actually look like in the birthing room? Like, what were you, what were, give us some verbs. What were you doing? Well, I have never, I was the loudest person in the room and I, it was like something took over in me. Like no one was telling me, you know what you do, but I, my first delivery was with a woman who was pushing for four hours. And that is not a normal that is not a normal duration of pushing. It also is typically after three, they're like, okay, we're doing either an operational delivery with like forceps or a vacuum, or we're going to the operating room for a C-section. However, this was an interesting case and had its unique um, indications for why she was pushing for this long. But I was there. I was the only person that was there from minute zero to out to delivery. And I just remember, you know, to put she was probably in seven different maneuvers, different positions over the course of these four hours. And I was ho either holding her hand, holding her leg, counting with every push. I counted to 10, probably a thousand times that day, just because like, I, I don't know. I just felt like this was my role. This was my moment. And in those four hours, I think I was in such a tunnel. I didn't realize how much time went on. I didn't even realize like, there were other people in the room. I just was so focused on her and helping her. And after it was so special because the husband, so this was their first child, their first ever delivery. And it was clearly traumatic. There was, there was a lot going on and it lasted forever. 
And he came up to me and he was like, you are the reason that she was able to deliver this baby vaginally. And I was like, what? She's like, this, she would have given up two hours ago if you were not right by her side this whole time. And I was like, wow, I didn't even realize like I, I'm just a med student. Like how could I have actually helped anything? And so hearing that from him and then the next day going back when she was in the postpartum floor and seeing the baby and talking to her and she was like, oh my God, I was praying that you would come back today because I didn't know if I would ever see you again, but I just needed to thank you. And so I think that was being a, my first delivery, b just a super long drawn out process. And then C having that feedback, I was like blown away by that experience. Amazing. What are the feelings right now as you recount that? I know I even am tearful thinking about it because, um, it was, I'm just shocked by the fact that that little effort that, or honestly, what I'm surprised by is like some internal drive that turned on in me that like really cared about that moment, about this stranger. And I, I, I don't even know how to explain it other than just this wave of gratitude and, and, and I don't know. Yeah. Gratitude, I think for being able to be that person there. Well, hearing you describe it and watching you as you describe it, it almost feels like you were in the middle of like a flow state. Mm-hmm. You were like kind of in your zone of genius, even though it was new for you, you clearly, you know, I would, in my belief system, like you've done this in many lifetimes, if this is the mm-hmm. kind of experience that can pull that out of you in that moment without preparation or without learning how to do it or watching someone else do it. Like you naturally knew how to be with a birthing woman mm-hmm. and you've probably done this before. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think that's true. Like I, there was something that took over because I did I hadn't seen, I hadn't seen a delivery before you know, a lot of these movements were new to me. I was like, why is she going upside down? But I was like, okay, we're, this is what we're doing. And um, yeah, I just felt like pulled and drawn to be there and do that for her. So. You know what a doula is, right? Yeah. So for people not, do you want to explain what a doula is for people who don't? No. Yeah. So we actually have, so at GW, you can, if you have a doula, you could bring them during um, your delivery. We also have midwives, but from my understanding and Kristen, you, you probably honestly know more and can explain it better than me. So from my understanding is a doula is basically someone that will birth the baby out and it can be outside the hospital or in our case in the hospital use it, but they use their own sort of techniques. And I think Kristen, you actually should explain it better. Well, they're, they're basically a person that uh, a couple or a woman who's going to give birth can hire or, you know, ask to be at her side during the whole labor and delivery. Mm -hmm. And they provide importantly, hands-on support. So they're there right up against the woman's back. If she needs someone to hold her back, they're doing effleurage, which is a technique where they can like gently touch her skin to create distraction against pain. Different kinds of, you know, nerve receptors can get stimulated and, and it sort of can dial down the pain response. There's mm. they're whispering, they're coaching, they're counting, they're doing whatever needs to be done. They're getting ice chips, they're putting a cool rag. And they actually have done studies looking at the impact of having a doula in the labor room with you. And the rate of operative delivery, both operative vaginal delivery and C-section, so forceps, vacuum, and C-section, those interventions, the rate of those goes down significantly when there is a doula in the room. So significantly that it's been said by midwives mostly, if a doula were a drug, it would be illegal not to give her. Wow. Because it's just such a massive Massive. difference in outcomes for women and babies to have a doula in the room. And Mm -hmm. it occurs to me that you are playing, you know, as a medical student, you can't do everything. They don't let you usually stitch up, you know, they don't let you cut the episiotomy if need. They don't do all this. There's lots of different things that med students Mm -hmm. are not allowed to do, but you have really leapt into the role of support person. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've also caught some babies, but like you're, you're doing the doula role. 
you know, which is often played by a husband, often played by a midwife, often played by a doctor, but you're really just, you're being present for that. And I'm sure that the husband and wife were right when they said, if you weren't there, it would have been a different delivery. It would have been a C-section. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. I actually, so typically I, I, I feel like when, when families come in with their own doula, they are also generally midwife families. And so when a family elects to use a midwife in the hospital, we have less, um, we're still involved in the care, but we have less involvement. And so I don't actually think I was able to observe a doula actually doing their hands-on work, which is something that I think I would really enjoy seeing and learning about. So yeah, thank you for sharing. Yeah. Well, it's part of why I gave you some homework, which was to go watch some YouTube videos of unassisted home birth. I know. I know. Is it- Unassisted refers to there's no doctor there, but it doesn't mean women are not unassisted in their, or, you know, not assisted in their births, you know, by mm-hmm. helping support people. Yeah. yeah. I haven't done that assignment, I guess. I'll <laughs> be on YouTube when you're ready. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't watch any of that stuff in medical school. I, I only did it when I prepared for my own home birth, you know, yeah. really had to like, you know figure out what the heck was going on and get my family on board. And, you know, we had to watch that stuff every night for nine months. That's an amazing story that I think is worth sharing because I was something that I, I learned in the hospital. And when I saw Kristen a couple of weeks ago, I had to share is that, you know, there's such a, there's such a difference across the board and how, um, women want their deliveries to go. I think some women will walk into the hospital and be like, give me an epidural right now. I, I don't want to feel anything and I just want this baby out. And that's the end. Some women will opt to not have an epidural, but then midway through feel like they want an epidural. Someone, women will not have an epidural at all. And I just think, and some will birth in the bat, in the tub, in the shower, there's so much very variety Um, but I also think that there's a lot of restriction too within that. And so hearing how different people, especially people that choose to give birth outside of the hospital is fascinating because there's, that's probably the rarest of occasions for, um, births and your story in particular, I think is fascinating. If you want to share with people since we're on the topic. Um, sure. Um, which part of the story? You mean talking about Xavier's birth? Xavier's birth. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So I had um, my first three children I had in a hospital and I considered them home births in a hospital because I had midwives for all of those or family doctor who was essentially a midwife in doctor clothing. And I was in the tub for most of it or the shower and on all fours and didn't have epidurals and um, and those all went really well. And my fourth baby, my last child, when I was 40, 40, when I was 40-ish, um, was someone who wanted to come outside the hospital. That's all I could say. Like, <laughs> it really clear to me before he was born that he wanted to be, he didn't want to be in a hospital and he wanted certain people there. And those people were midwives and family doctors and friends and family and, and and so I was like, wow, okay, well, this is, this is not something I've done before, but I, that's a pretty clear request and I'm going to respect that. And so we had to prepare ourselves because again, we had never done this before, but um, it was really clear to me that that's what this birth needed to be. And so we asked our family doctor who was no longer delivering, who had helped deliver my, my third child, if she would be there and she didn't have hospital privileges. She wasn't delivering anymore, but she said, listen, I'll be there, but you have, as long as you agree to let the midwife who delivered my three kids at home come to, and and be there for your birth. And so I met that woman and she was very kind. She was a little confused when I, she asked, why do you want a home birth? And I said, I don't really want a home birth. I just know that I need you to be the one delivering the baby. And that's where you deliver babies. So I think every visit she asked me that and she was always confused and always forgot because she was like, that's just so weird. But I was like, well, yeah. And um, in the end, it was a really amazing birth. And I had 
my parents there and my husband's parents there and all my kids were there. And uh, my sister-in-law was there and I had some close family friends, one of whom was a doctor who was a mentor to me and her kid and husband. It was just a It was a big, big party in our living room with uh, a little hot tub that we had um do we rent it or buy? I can't remember. It's all blur. The whole I thing mean, blur. But <laughs> I'm um, sure. yeah, and it was it was really quite beautiful. And I honestly don't think I would have been able to have that baby without a C-section if I'd had him in the hospital because mm-hmm. he was by three pounds. Huge. My babies. Yeah. He was 10 pounds, three ounces. He was um, full term. He I require, you know, it required me to kind of float and dance and swim around him as he came out. I mean, I needed no gravity and nice warm water for relaxation and all that hands-on support and thank goodness for it. And it, it went really well. And it was mm-hmm. amazing, amazing to like deliver him kind of into my hand and hold him underwater for a little while as he was sort of in this larger cocoon of water coming from one cocoon to another and kind of blinking around and, still connected to the placenta. So not needing to breathe yet. It was just a really magical, really magical birth. See, this is, this is where I'm at a crossroads because I find, so clearly I I see myself drawn to labor and delivery within the grand scheme of OBGYN. And I am drawn to these births that are more natural and similar, like, honestly, I'm drawn to the idea of home births. And as an MD practicing in a hospital setting, obviously that's not the the option. And as a resident, as a future resident in this field, I am going to be trained in a hospital and I'm going to learn a lot about the birthing process and all of the things that can and can't go wrong. Um, but I'm, I'm curious if there's a future or if there's a route in which like I take this knowledge and learning and, and maybe while I'm doing it in the hospital, I can try to make it as, you know, comfortable and I don't know, replicating that sort of experience that you had for my patients that choose that and want that. But is there, do you think that there's a way to create that sort of um, career field? I mean, I feel like it just requires departing from Western medicine, but. No, not, not departing from Western medicine. I think there's a, there are a lot of places that use doctors in a, in a more natural setting and, you know, midwives who partner with doctors in home birth settings and, you're not going to probably hear about them while you're in medical school or residency, depending on where you're training. If you're training in a very rural place or in a place that has just a lot of midwives, like there was a, a program I looked at that was actually a family medicine program, but they were very, very heavy in OB, which was appealing to me. Cause at that time I really, that was what I wanted to do was OB within family medicine. And um, this is in Lancaster PA and their hospital system. They had an entire hospital that was purely an OB hospital, like for deliveries and women's health. And it was run by the family medicine doctors in conjunction with midwives. So it was a, you know, it was a, it was a much more kind of natural birth focused um, culture than the traditional OB run. Um, And I also, I think there are a lot of OBs who, maybe not a lot, I've I've met a handful of OBs who had very natural birth bents. None of them were practicing outside hospitals, but they were supportive of midwives who were and lay midwives and partnering with lay midwives. So, you know, as for supervision and backup. So if that person's, you know, if a midwife's patient needed to come to the hospital urgently, there wasn't, there was, the path was kind of paved and people could get in easily um, Mm -hmm. when things went south. So I think I would say, don't get dismayed just because you don't see a lot of role models and don't forget that you can create the job you want. Mm -hmm even if you don't see it existing anywhere yet. Yeah. I envision, I envision there being space for, I don't know what, if a woman wants to have a home birth, but they want a doctor there or, you know, I don't know. I think midwives have the, have all of the skills and more than doctors do in that, in the realm of home birth. And, um, 
So I don't know if it's like necessarily the biggest request is I want to have a doctor there, but maybe I'm sure that there is space for creating something or partnering with individuals to create something to support women in outside of the hospital. But that's a long ways away for me. I'm sure there is. And if there's not, I'm sure it can be created. You know, it's yeah. women, there are a lot of women who want a home birth, but they want the security of a doctor there, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. want to have that. And I will say midwives are very, very skilled at low risk birth. Yeah. More skilled than most OBs at low risk birth. Right. They're skilled at right. keeping it low risk. They're skilled at managing and then they're skilled at empowering these women. And they're also really, really good. I mean, hopefully they're really, really good. Usually they're really, really good at knowing when it's not low risk anymore. Yeah. And say, this is now out of my lane. We have to go somewhere else. You're right. Right. Oh, it's exciting because I think that like, I know, I know that those are future paths for me. Um, it just requires, I'm still like in the very early stages of this journey. Um, so seeing and hearing your story and seeing kind of the experiences in the hospital I know that there is a there's a future that I am excited about within this within this field. So, well, and this is also why I think it's important to see some natural birth, to see some home birth, to just really start to internalize how much it's possible for women's bodies to just do this. Mm-hmm. Put a lot of hands and instruments and you know guidelines into the whole thing and that's really for our sense of control but women's yeah. how to do this and mm-hmm. if you kind of let them do their thing and support them to do their thing it usually turns out pretty well i think mm-hmm. it's when fear gets involved either on the part of the woman or the family the husband the partner or the doctor oftenly frankly that um labor shuts down yeah you and know? when it's so accessible right you're in the hospital and medicine's literally a foot away from you it's very if one thing gets uncomfortable it's very easy to jump right to um, a medication versus when you're at home you kind of push through things a little bit more until you reach for that yeah agreed yeah yeah so you're not an ob anymore i'm not do you miss it I do. So I, I'm on anesthesia, but I have sneakily requested to to get into OB cases and up to the OB floor. So all the anesthesiologists, they go and they do a rotation. The residents rotate through the OB floor because obviously there's a lot of epidurals. And if a woman has to go into a C-section, there has to be an immediate either. Anesth- there has to be an anesthesiologist there. And so um that's been great because I've been able to see the actual process of putting in an epidural, which is something that I didn't get to do when I was on OBGYN and um, kind of the indications and the contraindications for when you would want to do an epidural. And so, yeah, I'm now that it's crazy because once it was like a, once that flip switched in terms of me knowing what I wanted to do now, I can kind of take my education in the context of that and it, and I, I feel like I'm just like putting a lot of things in my toolkit so that when I do go to residency, I'll be like, oh, I know when to call the anesthesiologist. I know what they're going to do. And, and so it's, it's fun being able to do that now, which, which like when I was on previous rotations, I don't think I had that lens into things as much. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That question of like, okay, what does an OB need to know about your specialty? Yeah. Yeah. GYN need to understand about surgery or family medicine or dermatology or anesthesiology in this case. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and shockingly that, so I did, I have been asking those questions and trying to figure out, you know, what their read is. And obviously that these individuals spend so much time in the operating room because they are putting the patients to sleep and then they're observing the surgeons. And OBGYNs do a lot of a lot of surgical procedures and so they spend time in the same operating rooms and I've learned that because OBGYNs are not general surgery trained there's a lot of things that they do in the OR that are not necessarily 
appropriate or maybe congruent with what the sur trained surgeons have done. And there's, as a result, they have a um, certain sort of, uh, what's the word? Like, Reputation. reputation. Yeah. They, I think there's a little bit of a reputation that they carry, um, in terms of their surgical skills. And so that being aware of that and knowing that maybe that's, that's some, that's a stereotype that people carry. I feel empowered to like, try to change that and be someone that can go into the operating room and execute as a surgeon would. And it's a bummer that they're definitely seen as like, surgeon like wannabes or like not quite surgeons but in the OR and I think that that's unfortunate because um, what they're doing is so important um but it, it's definitely been something I've noticed them talk about in a way that doesn't feel positive and so having that on my radar I think I I will try to hopefully make that sort of change when I do end up in the OR yeah well in defense of OBGYNs a lot of the surgeries they're doing in OB are emergent and urgent and get the baby out two seconds ago kind of surgeries that right. don't leave a lot of room for being meticulous and, you know, making the perfect cut. And you know what I mean? It's about, it's a life or death situation. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. And there's so much more than just what they do in the operating room. Like a surgeon is surgeon because that's what they are trained and, and they do. But an OBGYN is so much more and surgery is something that they can do and that they are trained in and that they do, but it's not their one and only thing. So maybe it's not going to be as clean cut as some, as someone that's trained for six years in general surgery. So I think that there's, it was just something that I was like, hmm, this definitely seems like they're not talking super positively about them in the operating room. So I don't know. I put that one like, on my radar. Well, if you get a little defensive for them or a little bit like, huh, 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 huh. a little bit, actually. Yeah, I, I, I did feel myself kind of like being like wanting to question a lot of I did question some of the things that they were saying because I I some at some points are like oh they're so slow or uh, but I'm like at like he once the baby's out like it's so slow but it's like okay well they're repairing the uterus which then it has a lot of a lot of layers to then repair afterwards and I think I don't know slow slow is a complaint that I think is I can handle like sure you're slow but that's maybe because you're being meticulous and it's for patient care sorry well, deal with it yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. So just, they can continue read. They, the thing about anesthesia that's wild is, you know, once your patient's stable, you really can kind of hang out for a little bit. And it's, it's so different from everything else that I've been. I'm like, Oh, am I just supposed to like read the news? Like they'll start reading the news and I'm like, okay, I guess we'll just sit here and read the news. Sounds good to really? me. So do you yeah. bring bring news in with you? You bring a newspaper? <laughs> no, I mean, I have my phone, but they'll pull up the New York times. I'm like, just start scrolling and I'm like, okay, I guess we're just hanging. I'll do Wordle. So, so phones in the OR. Yeah. But not, I mean, they have the, what is it yeah. called? Blood, not under the sterile. They call it the blood brain barrier. <laughs> no, but that's funny. <laughs> the anesthesiologist I work with used to call the little sheet they put between the surgeons and the anesthesiologist, the blood brain barrier. <laughs> oh my gosh, I should whip that one out tomorrow. Let's see if you make friends with that. Um That's a great one. so behind the behind the blood brain barrier when you're on the anesthesia side is not sterile. It's not sterile. No. So you can have your phone. The surgeons obviously don't have their phones out. Right. Correct. Yeah, they are fully okay. sterile. Yeah, okay. Yeah, times haven't changed that. Times haven't changed that one, right? <laughs> So um, speaking of slow, the pace of anesthesiology compared to OB, I remember my my weeks on OB when people would say, what's OB like? How are you doing? And I'd be like, I'm just running. I'm running. I'm running. Oh my God. <laughs> all, day, all day long as I run from room to room, place to place, floor to floor running because mm -hmm. there's just not much work to do and it's always urgent. Um, is anesthesia different? Oh my God. Well, I describe OBGYN very similarly in that like, lunch 
break no like you could maybe try to like fit a bar into your mouth as you're running from room to room but you're really there's always something going on and you're and it's so hands-on that there's that there's not a lot of time to just sit and take a deep breath um anesthesia on the other hand is i mean they are such a generous folk that like you get one time we we intubated the patient we're sitting there and like 10 minutes after intubation, someone comes in and it's like, okay, it's time for your break. I'm like, we get a break? Like, we get to go out there. And then they're like, oh, yeah, this is our coffee room. They had their whole anesthesia coffee room with fruit and goodies. And I'm like, this is the life. And then we go back. Oh, here's you have an hour for lunch. And I'm like, okay, this has never happened before. So I will say it's very different. Everyone that I've met has been so kind and generous. I think it's been very evident to me you go into anesthesia if you want to have that balance. I don't think maybe a few, I don't think anyone goes in because they're like, I love looking at this end title CO2. I love looking at this volume and pressure of lung pressure all day long. It just seems hard for me to believe that someone, and maybe there is people that just love looking at event settings and changing it and dosing medications all day long. Not me. And, but I value their decision. And I honestly, I envy it because their balance is fantastic. It's fantastic. So and they're all so happy. When you're saying balance, you mean. I mean, I mean the amount of time they spend at work versus the amount of time they spend outside of work. And so, and they're not, and they're balanced even within work, that being like ability to have a healthy lunch time, ability to have take breaks, drink water, socialize, laugh. They do a really good job at all of those things. And I think those things are really important and they seem very connected as a cohort, the residents at least, more connected than any of the residents that I've seen in other departments. And I envy that. I think that that's amazing. They seem the happiest out of all the residents I've worked with. So there's definitely something to be said about the importance of balance in sustaining you and keeping you happy and healthy. I can't convince myself that that would be a reason to go into a field where I would not be very fulfilled every day. Like, I don't think I would, I would just be really bored. Um, and I don't feel like I'm serving patients in a way that I personally want to serve them and engage with them. But for someone that doesn't, doesn't feel that need or desire or drive, it's nothing is for sure the way to go. I wonder if there's something besides end and title CO2 levels and watching the chest go up and down and medication pushing. I wonder if there's something that's really magical and mystical for, for people who go into anesthesia that you and I missed the memo on. So I've tried to ask because I've, I've been genuinely curious about, you know, why someone would choose to, why you go into anesthesia. And the the it's funny because like the answer that I think I get that they put on paper for an application is very... I really un enjoy the pharmacology and the physiology and understanding, you know, how different medications interact and what medication, how medication dosing can affect this part of an individual's physiology. So I'm like, okay, like if that is genuinely super interesting to you, then I applaud you because that's, but then I also get an answer. Of, and also I think it gives me the best bang for my buck. I make good money and I get to spend time with my kids every night. I'm like, also valid answer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anesthesia used to be one of the four specialties that we all called the road to happiness. Do you know about the road? Oh yeah. Do I know? Because I don't think any of them appeal to me, which is such a bummer. So what is it? Oh, radiology. radiology, ophthalmology, anesthesia, and, and derm. Yeah. Yeah. They're the most, they're at least when I was going into residency, they were the most competitive specialties and urology. Urology was also. Urology is up there. Yeah. 
but you know, those were the, that was the road to happiness and they were the hardest ones to get into. Yep. I think because some people had really just realized, wow, I'm not sure I want to look like this set of residents over here. I'd rather look like this set of residents in the break room, making sure they get their wordle done before noon. (laughs) (laughs) Literally it's, I know, I know. It is, it's, it's shocking. It's shocking. And and it's sad because I actually was just on FaceTime with one of my best friends in med school. And we said, why is it such an anomaly that we're talking about these residents being so, why are we so shocked that they're happy and they have good balance? Like, it's so sad that this is like, I am three quarters of the way through my third year of med school. I've spent over a year in the clinical setting. And this is the first time I've worked with residents that seem happy. Like that seems so shocking. And like the system is flawed if that's the reality. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone would argue that the system is flawed. It's against that. It's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty hectic, you know, the training process and, and very few specialties leave room for things like midday lunches. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of motivated as an intern that I just think that anesthesia kind of figured it out with the giving you a break and like giving you time to refuel and recharge. There's something to be said about just going and going and going and never really having that moment to like just reset, recharge, get a bite to eat, but in a way that is like activating your parasympathetic nervous system, allowing you to just because your brain is not going to function at a high level if it's just continually simulated for a 12, 14 hour day. So I think they've figured it out, right? Like they are still covering all their bases through this like rotating lunch schedule, whatever they're doing. Patients are still being cared for. I don't know. I think, I think that we need to take some notes from them and like try to implement that sort of system if it's hard though because we discussed this I think over Thanksgiving like anytime there's a change in shift or a change in patient care things get lost in translation and so I think with anesthesia it's pretty objective because they're all measurements and you just look and you can know what's right and what's wrong but with a change of shift in something like OBGYN patient care across the board is much more subjective and, and longitudinal and you, it requires a lot more attention to different details that I think can be missed with that sort of shift in caregiver sort of situation. Yeah. I don't think it's an insurmountable problem, but it is a problem and it is, there's, there's some systems issues and cultural issues, right? There's a, there's a culture, there's an ethic of you know, I'm working, I'm the hardest working person in the building in mm-hmm. a lot of specialties. Um, but yeah, not insurmountable for creative people who want to work on it. Right. Oh, I just envision myself as an intern, a first year resident coming, going into a program and being like, you know, guys, I think we should implement a lunch break at it with a rotational system where everyone is given a 30 minute period to really reset recharge, eat their lunch in a calm manner, not while writing a note. I just can imagine myself doing that and just being like laughed at like, oh my gosh, what are you thinking? <laughs> like, why do you, who do you think you are walking into this space and sharing that idea? Yeah, that's probably what happened. Doesn't mean you shouldn't try, but you'll probably, you'll probably receive some laughs. Maybe not day one. When I walked into the OB, um, to the hospital with my birthing ball. You know, I was a, I was in, I was in residency and I was having my third baby uh-huh. and, and I tried to have my home births in the hospital until I actually had a home birth. And I brought my birthing ball, which is a big people. You have those two, probably your hospital. You, yeah. You, br- you had one. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it was one of those big physio balls, right? They're not really necessarily birthing balls. They're just those exercise balls, but it was a huge yeah. ball. And I brought it in with me and they wheeled me and I was in a wheelchair because I couldn't walk at that point. I was having such massive contractions and I had my ball and they rolled me past the chief resident in OB who I had been working with, you know, who I knew well. And he looked, took one look at me. I don't even think he registered that it was me. And he just burst out laughing 
burst out laughing. Because you brought your physio ball? At a laboring woman in pain with her birthing ball. <gasps> I mean, it just Did you say, I don't want him in there? No, at that moment, I he was the least of my worries. But I, I registered it. I was like, okay, that's, that's, that's not okay. That's not okay. Yeah. yeah, they will laugh at you and it's not okay. It doesn't mean you shouldn't bring your birthing ball or your idea about you know, rotating lunch schedule. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, it's such a contrast, right? OB to anesthesia. And yet there's that clear overlap. You know, any woman having an epidural requires an anesthesiologist in the room to put the epidural in. Mm-hmm. So it's an, it's interesting that you went from OB straight to anesthesia and have that contrast. Yeah, it really has been interesting. It really has. Um, but I will say as great as the balance is and how much, as much as I love being able to sit for an hour and eat lunch, I will say the days I left work on OBGYN, I felt so energized by my day. Like I needed to just spew things into my, my little journal about everything that I saw and learned and so filled up. And I don't feel that when I leave the hospital after a day of anesthesia. So although I know it's going to be a grind, it really will. Like residency across the board, it's hard, but OBGYN is is really, just really hard. And I know that I'm committing to something that's going to be challenging. I, I genuinely feel like it's worth it. I really do. Well, you're no stranger to challenging goals. Right. You've run a few marathons. You've graduated from a very intense elite university. You've had lots of challenges. You've taken on med school as a challenge, right? That's no cakewalk. So I have no doubt that you will succeed in achieving your goals. Mm -hmm. What are you doing to invoke your parasympathetics or what were you doing more on OB when it was running, running, running? Did you take downtime or did you carve out some time and space to kind of center yourself, ground yourself? collect yourself, breathe. Yeah. So I think last time we had, you asked this question, I was just in my journey of starting yoga more kind of formally and really trying to strengthen my practice. And that's been, that's been a continued journey. I've also, I've also become a very um, excited, avid plant mom. So these are my new fun. Oh, I have blurred screen on, but these are my, this is my next fun, like parasympathetic invoking hobby. And I have a number of plants learning about plants, learning how um, to nurture and love them and having them in a space where I like my bedroom, where there feels like so much life has actually become such a important part of my day. Um, just like nurturing my plants and seeing them grow and learning more about plants. Um, so that's been my OBGYN parasympathetic hob- inducing hobby, I would say. And plant. now I'm now I'm a plant mom. So now I have I'm up to four now, which nice. I know is for some people is not a lot, but for me, starting from zero, this is this has been my my new journey. Congratulations on your four new <laughs> children. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> awesome. Anything else that you want to say um, to your future self who's going to look back at this five years from now or six months from now or 25 years from now and say, I wonder what I was thinking about when I went through my rotation where I had the first set of huge sparks and said, this is what I want to do. I think what I want to say to that person is to remember how I felt during these deliveries as a third year medical student, because really every delivery that I was in over those three weeks, I was I felt this extreme sense of joy and excitement and love and emotion. And I, I can see a world where 
I lose that. And like, you know, it just becomes the mundane um, delivery. Like, like what, after you do something many, many times, anything becomes a little more dampened and dull. And I think reminding that future person that innocent joy and love and emotion that I'm feeling now and to try to tap into that and like create space for that even when it's becoming routine because although I, I want to be an expert and I want to be really good at what I do and I think in order to do that you have to do something so many times I really hope to not lose the emotional connection that I feel now after I've done it so many times. Beautiful. That's a beautiful intention. I'm going to hold that with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been a great conversation, Megan, and it's always fun hearing where you are on this, on this path to becoming a healer. Thank you for having me. And I really do cherish these videos. I think it will be special, not only for our listeners, but for me to look back on. This journey has not been linear or easy. And so I appreciate this documentation of what I'm experiencing and going through. Awesome. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Healing Grove podcast. If you liked it, please be sure to like and subscribe. And if you want to deepen your experience further, consider grabbing a copy of the Healing Grove Playbook. With journal prompts for this podcast and 41 others, it's the perfect place to record your learnings, keep track of the tools you explore, and reflect on your own experience. Finally, it's important to mention that even though I am a doctor, nothing you hear on this podcast, whether from myself or my guests, constitutes medical advice. Any intervention you try should always be discussed with and supervised by a trusted member of your own healing team. Thanks for listening and see you next time in the Healing Grove.